This is SermonSmith, a podcast of conversations about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might have just noticed a little tweak there. I normally say a bi-weekly conversation, and today I said a podcast of conversations. And I've just been in a season where I've been having a hard time sustaining the bi-weekly part of the podcast. So for the time being, I'm just keeping out these as often as I can. I hope to do uh, at least once a month. I Really, I hope to continue to do bi-weekly. Let's move on, though. Let's get to it. My guest today is Tara Beth Leach, who has been a guest before. But as you'll hear, she has transitioned from the role she was at before, where she was a teaching pastor, teaching uh, maybe about once a month, to now she is the senior pastor of Pasadena Nazarene Church. And she talks just a lot about how significant that has been and what a change that's meant for her sermon preparation. Uh, so I hope you'll appreciate that conversation. I, I really love and uh, appreciate her heart as it comes through and hearing how that's grown and matured even in a few years since I last talked to her. Uh, the sponsor for today could be you. I am again want to talk about Patreon, which is a place to become a patron of things that you want to support, patron of the arts, so to speak. And if you go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith, you can pledge to support the podcast uh, however much money. Maybe it's a dollar, maybe it's five dollars for each time we publish a new conversation. That's up to you, knowing that they're going to be anywhere from once a month to ideally in the future, even four times a month. But you can always change your pledge as well if I'm able to up that amount. So go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith and you can support the podcast that way. And of course, you can always uh, and you can also support the podcast by going to iTunes and rating the podcast there, uh, leaving a review of any kind. Of course, I like five star reviews, but a review of any kind just helps uh, the people who do all of the curating at iTunes help other people discover new podcasts. So that's a great way for you to just take a few moments and help other people uh, find out about these great conversations that we're having here. So thanks so much for listening, and here we are with Tara Beth. You have been a guest before. Yes, I have. Yeah, I think it's been years. It's been, it's been almost three years. I looked it up, and it was May 12th, 2014, we published it. I don't, I'm sure we recorded it shortly before that. Yeah, yeah. But what's happened here is you're in a different place. Why don't you I, Why don't you briefly remind us of where you were in May of 2014? Yeah. So I was serving at a church as a teaching pastor and church planter in residence. And uh, that church is an amazing church there in Naperville. And we were looking towards potentially planting a church. Um, and actually, that's why I was brought on was to plant a church. But it just, um, it wasn't right. It wasn't right. The church, we weren't ready for that. We weren't ready to plant a church. The church wasn't quite ready. Um, and just with where we were in our life stage, um, it just became clear that that wasn't uh, the right timing to plant. Um, and it was kind of, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time there. I have nothing but wonderful things to say about that community and that church and leaving them um, like leaving any community is hard and painful because you love them. You fall in love with the people. And um, we jumped into it really quick and we were kind of learning about church planting as we were going, all of us. And we all are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We realized that, you know what, this is, this is not the right time and, and space to plant a church. And so eventually I ended up all the way out here in California 
um, as a senior pastor now of First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena, or also known as PazNaz, and I never in my life would have dreamed that I would be here at this church uh, as a senior pastor. I've known about this church for a long time, uh, probably since 2002 was when I first became aware of this congregation. I was actually here in 2002 at 21 years old Hmm. for a training for a missions trip to Africa. We were staying here uh, for a couple of weeks and we were training. And I remember really well wandering through the hallways one time, just looking around the church and ended up in the sanctuary. And I stood in the sanctuary on their big, beautiful stage and even behind the pulpit. And the thought hit me, what if I preached here or pastored here someday? Wouldn't that be crazy? Wow. And of course that you know, probably then seemed like a fleeting, just young uh, woman's dream. But God has a funny way of acting and moving and working and leading sometimes. And here we are, um, all the way in Pasadena, California. So, yeah, I mean, I I met you in person a year later um, after our first interview. And that's when you were in that not going to be sure what was next. And then you know, I guess, I mean, you've been there since May of last year, it looks like. But That's then right. I remember seeing on the Twitter <laughs> or some, yeah. somewhere along the the way that you'd just been hired out there. So how did that? And so the funny thing is also, I mean, it's only been a couple months ago that I interviewed Scott Daniels. Oh, wow. And I did yeah. not realize that Scott Daniels was at the church where you now are. So there's even a little more I, connection. Because it's funny because I was talking to him in that interview saying, I think you're my first Nazarene pastor. And then all of the pieces in our conversation came together, and I went, "No, I've interviewed Tara Beth before she was Nazarene." Uh, so how did all, how did it come about? How did you go from finishing up, you know, you're you're finishing up your MDiv at Northern, and suddenly yep. you're interviewing for a position way out west? <laughs> yeah, it was a really crazy experience. So Jeff and I knew that we were in a time of transition, but truly, we thought that. We were going to land somewhere or be somewhere long-term in the Chicago area. Um, We always imagined ourselves living in Chicago forever. Our family is out there. and um, But at the same time, we were in this period for a couple of years just uh, trying to listen to the Spirit and trying to to discern. And at that time, I was not in a Nazarene church. Uh, It was in a non-denominational church. but I have always been a Wesleyan holiness girl and um, even started writing quite a bit on it and uh, longed in many ways to be a part of the Nazarene tribe. And um, I was at a conference and I ran into the president of Nazarene Theological Seminary, Carla Sundberg. And Carl and I were talking, and I was telling her about a church that had been pursuing me. And I actually got really vulnerable with her and uh, began to weep and tell her that I was aching to be with the Nazarenes and with that tribe, but I just didn't know if that would ever happen again. Mm. Um, You know, the Church of the Nazarenes, since its inception, has always affirmed women in ministry, but for women to find a senior pastor role is, is difficult. And she looked at me and just said that, I believe that there's going to be a place for you. And this is, this is going to work out. And she said, you are our Nazarene pastor on loan. 
And I walked away from that encouraged by her encouragement, but still just not knowing what would happen. And we, um, you know, we parted ways and it was about a month later. Uh, First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena called Carla and said, we're looking for a pastor. Scott Daniels has left. Do you have any names? And Carla gave them, you know, several names. Uh, One of them was mine. And the head of the search committee went and uh, listened to sermons that day. And I happened to have been preaching that day. And so he found my sermon from that day. It was the day after the Paris attack. And I preached on it in response to it. Um, I preached about our our pasture in a world that is full of evil and and what it means to be a redemptive community in the midst of that. And the head of the search committee described it that he was just really moved by the sermon and felt like the spirit was stirring something in his heart. But he actually said out loud many times, he said, she has the gifts, but this would be so much easier if she were a man. Hmm. Um, because he knew that calling a woman to this church, this historic church that is um, over 110 years old, um, he knew that it was going to be difficult to call a 34-year-old young woman who's never been a senior pastor. And um, this church has never had a male or uh, never had a female pastor before. And so he knew that he was looking towards an uphill struggle. Um, and so, you know, he, he kept pursuing names and kept having conversations with people. Eventually he called me and he would call more people. And, um, every time, um, I think three, on three different occasions, he would call Nazarenes to get names and all three times my name was given. Hmm. And, um, and so he and I started having phone conversations, but it was apparent that it was going to be hard. I was just graduating from Northern Seminary. Um, I've never been a senior pastor. This is a larger church. This is a historic church. This is a flagship church. Um, and we knew that if this were to happen, that there would many be many that would be confused by this. Um, and so, but man, you know, and even for me, when this first started to happen, I really ran from it at first. I thought there is just no way I'm not qualified. I had a, I was filled with self-doubt. But over time, the Lord really just began to uh, confirm in my heart and in my mind um, my love for the local church. I think that for many, I was a I was a teaching pastor for so long, and I had wrapped my identity up in in being a teaching pastor and preaching a really good sermon and um, being able to get the attention of people through a sermon on Sunday morning, instead of the long-term shepherding um, a people and pastoring a people. And I I went through a bit of a shift. The Spirit um, really helped me um, awaken. It was there, but awaken that, that aching and longing for pastoring and shepherding a community for the long haul. And um, sure, I still feel unqualified, um, but that over time, um, began to fade in the background and, um, a real strong sense of call began to move to the front seat. And at the same time, um, Paz Naz and the board, and we, we were interviewing more and it just both sides. It just was so clear. Mm -hmm. It was so clear. And, uh, it still feels like a dream. I'm still pinching myself. I still can't believe I'm here and I'm just in awe. I get that this is a big deal. 
that this church, this historic church, made such a bold move to call a young woman as their senior pastor. So, I mean, would that be relatively, even though women are affirmed, it's pretty unheard of in Nazarene. Like how many other Nazarene women senior pastors do you know? Um, I know very few. Yeah. Most of the Nazarene senior pastors that I know, actually all of the Nazarene senior pastors that I know are co-pastors with their husbands. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, and less than 7% of pastors are women in our denomination and about the average size um, that women pastor is 50. I mean, which is kind of true to where our denomination is right now as well. But this is a little bit of an anomaly. This is, this was like more than a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was crazy. I mean, only God, only God. And so the backstory of this podcast then is, you know, we had you on before and, uh, but that was when you were in a teaching pastor role and, um, Joe Fultz, do you know Joe or did he just respond on Twitter to another tweet? Yeah, no, I know okay. of Joe. So we know each other through online, really. I mean, he's um, he's in Nazarene circles online, so I see stuff that he posts, and uh, we interact that way, but I don't know know him. Yeah, well, I mean, he just he followed up to a tweet about your prior one that just said, yeah. hey, maybe that would be interesting, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense because you're in a very different context, both in terms of preaching every week, and yeah. but also in terms of just being in a very different place, you know, suburban yeah. Naperville versus you know, long established church in Pasadena. I'm sure there's some cultural differences there. So that's why we're here. And we might, I had really good intentions to go back. I still actually have some memories of our, our, our original conversation, but yeah. I, I had good intentions this week to listen again, but I didn't, but, yeah. um, but that's okay. Cause we're going to focus more on the now, but let's, yeah. you've talked a little bit about Paznaz, but give us a little bit more just in terms of the overall context of the church. I mean, Talk a little bit. Many people are probably familiar, but talk a little bit about Pasadena and then what kinds of people are part of the church. Yeah. So Pasadena is a suburban community right outside of Los Angeles. We're in Los Angeles County. And so it is a very, very diverse community. Um, Pasadena is, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a big city, but we are also right on the border of Pasadena and Sierra Madre. Um, which Sierra Madre is a really small community of only 10,000, kind of on the side of a mountain, um, not much of a through community. And so being where we are, we kind of, um, it feels like in a lot of ways that on one end we're in Los Angeles and on the other end we're in a small town. Um, and again, you know, the diversity is um, – it's, it's very diverse out here, which is, I love it. It's beautiful. And it's also been a learning curve for me back in Chicago. Whenever someone would say diversity, the conversation was often a binary conversation. Sure. We were black and white. Yeah. Um, but out here it is just the, the rainbow is just so much more uh, diverse and beautiful. And um, it seems like everywhere I go, there's, uh, I hear another language spoken when I drop my son off at preschool here at our own church, there are, pockets of moms standing in circles and they're all, um, all speaking a different language. And so, uh, and, and lots and lots and lots of first generation immigrants here. Um, and even many in our own congregation. And so that's, 
that's been really a beautiful thing. Um, and I definitely have to take the posture of a learner as I try to understand all of that. And that is probably one of the biggest learning curves for me is um, recognizing that we are pastoring a congregation that um, comes from many, many different walks of life. We are also intergenerational. And so Paznaz really had a big boom and wave in the 80s and 90s. Um, and even in the late 70s with the pastor early. And many of the people that are still here were part of that wave of that influx or that momentum from then. And um, in the 2000s, Paznaz went, went through some very difficult, almost traumatic times for the congregation. Um, they lost a lot of people. And Scott Daniels, um, the pastor who we just spoke about, really brought the congregation back to a place of stability and health. Um, but also at the same time, um, this church, uh, First Church of the Nazarene, is experiencing what many First Churches of the Nazarene in our country are experiencing in this post-Christian context. Um, Paznaz started to decline about five years ago, um, a slow decline. And then when uh, the senior pastor, Scott Daniels, left, they lost 400 people in one year. And so, um, so we are feeling the effects of uh, what it means to be postured um, in this world, in this post-Christian context. And so one of the things that I began to pray nine months ago when I got here was, Lord, the world is changing. We know that. Um, we know that this is a different context, that our neighborhoods are different than they were in the 80s and 90s. And so, Lord, help us to reimagine our missional posture in our local neighborhoods. What does it mean to be postured towards mission? Give us that imagination. And um, and so we began a process as a congregation of um, collaborating, of praying, of listening to one another. And we just rolled out our new mission statement last Sunday, which is uh, seek to know Christ and join him on mission in our local and global neighborhoods and in many ways, I mean, you know, Paznaz has always been a missional church, but this is a bit of a paradigm shift for all of us to begin to rethink what this means that uh, for us to be a missional people, which to be the people of God is inescapably to be missional. Um, we are on mission with God. Um, but a little bit of a paradigm shift to think that we're not going to worry about filling seats in the sanctuary. It's not about attracting people on Sunday mornings and having the best programs. Um, but it's about all of us, every one of us, ordinary Christians, stepping into our own neighborhoods, taking our address seriously in our own context, and laying down our lives for the sake of the other and for our neighbor. And so we've been going through a lot of strategic planning and uh, alignment, mission alignment and vision alignment and how we can posture our ministries and align our ministries um, towards that mission statement. So it's exciting days where there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of momentum around here. And um, I, it seems like our congregation is ready for this and excited. I mean, I'm looking at even sermon series you've done. Excuse me. You you kind of hit the ground running with that because you two weeks in you started a whole series going through acts called Wired for Mission. So you were yeah. trying to create some orientation toward mission from the start. Absolutely. So that sermon series um, 
was for me laying the framework and groundwork of a missional ecclesiology. Um, and, uh, and, and so, and I felt, you know, the book of Acts is the best way to start. Let's just walk through the book of Acts and see the first missional church in the book of Acts. And so we walked through that and it was very much of a 10,000 feet up. Here's what the missional church looks like. Um, here's what it means to join Christ on mission. And then, um, and then beginning in the fall, we, uh, we did a series on finding God. That was the 15 year anniversary of nine 11. And so we just addressed, you know, where's God, um, you know, in, in destruction and disaster. And then we moved into the politics of Jesus series, which, um, perhaps we could talk about that in a few minutes and then advent, um, and then, and then we went into a covenant series, and then now we're doing a series at, because after all this collaboration and praying, we've been able to identify our mission statement. Now it's living the mission. So in a lot of ways, we are picking up where we left off with Wired for Mission. We talked about what does it mean theologically to be a people um, that are created for mission. We're wired for mission. This is what we are called to do. Now, what does it look like in this context to actually live that mission? And so, I mean, one of the questions I often like to ask, I don't remember if I was asking this question yet when I interviewed you the first time, but I'm going to tweak it. I often ask, what is the role of preaching in the life of your congregation? But I guess even in the midst of all this, uh, as you're, you know, bringing this new sense of new mission statement and all that to the church and trying to reorient the church toward the mission focus, what... What has the role of the sermon been in the midst of all of that? Yeah. So it is so interesting, just the mind shift for me um, that I have gone through in thinking about the role of the sermon, um, because I am thinking long, long term, um, the long term formation of a people, the long term incremental formation of a people. Um, the entire gathering from start to finish is... Um, about being formed in, I mean, ultimately we are formed in Christ. We are transformed in Christ through the presence of the spirit, through the work of the triune God. And the gathering is a place in which Christians are pointed towards one another. We are using our gifts to edify one another. Um, every single component of the service um, is to celebrate this grand narrative that we have been invited into, but also to strengthen, edify us, inform us for the mission. And so the sermon is about edification, ultimately, um, for mission. You know, discipleship and the sermon event uh, is often thought of as an event that is an end, but it's a means by which we are formed for mission. And so, um, and at the same time, we also have every Sunday, we have people walking in that are walking in from a dry and parched desert, barely making it in and are just looking for a word of hope. And we get to do that on Sunday mornings through the proclamation of the word. We get to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. We get to pr proclaim the good news that God is faithful, uh, that God has been faithful to be a God of a people that have floundered. And yet he has kept us that God is faithful to um, start a worldwide movement through a handful of people, and God is faithful to bring about the new heaven and the new earth, which we live into now. And so that sermon um, 
that that we get to proclaim is you know it's so multi-layered so multi-faceted uh, and we, we're proclaiming hope to people that are desperate for hope and we're also attempting um, for it to be a means by which people are formed and shaped for mission to go out into the world ready and empowered I mean, it's, I don't want to oversimplify and overcharacterize here, but so many, uh, so many churches that might match the description you just gave of yours, you know, a church that really boomed in the 70s and 80s and had, you know, is a large church and has, you know, a lot of uh, maybe a boomer generation to it, although it sounds like it's more than that. But for so many, then the sermon in that context really became about like personal challenge and personal growth. That's right. And so what is what is your process have you have you been pretty direct or have you had to kind of work the angles as Eugene Peterson would say to kind of almost tweak it from this expectation of I'm coming here to receive and be challenged for me to grow versus being at this formation of a people how's that shaped how you're writing sermons yeah so well it's funny you ask that cuz so this sunday um is part 2 of living the mission and we are talking about that formation process. And I'm going through really just direct steps of what it is and what it isn't. Um, you know, so often just discipleship, for example, or this word spiritual formation is kind of this disembodied practice um, that is something that can be accomplished, that we can achieve, or this linear process. And um, this week I'm laying out, um, you know, what it is and what it isn't that it isn't an end, um, that it isn't a disembodied practice, but we are embodied people being formed and shaped for something. And that this discipleship process and even the preaching event, if you will, is a means uh, by which we are formed. Um, and it's an ongoing event. Um, it isn't something that, you know, that, and, and like what you said, I mean, yes, for years it's been about um, this personal piety of growing so that I can honor and please God, which yes, absolutely. We are the royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. That's what it means to be. But all of that to, is about mission. Um, all of that is um, so that the world would peer in and see this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people of God that are being shaped and formed, and they would see what God looks like. Uh, they would see what God is like. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I feel like every week that I'm preaching, I'm adding kind of a new brick or a new thought. And, you know, by the conversations you have with people, you, you realize some people, they're really, their wheels are turning and they're really getting it. And for others, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's such a different way of thinking for some. Yeah. And so, um, and that's where I, I've, begun to realize just how this this thing that we get to do called pastoring and pastoral preaching is is about the long haul um incremental steps of of helping people um see things in a new and fresh way and i have to assume a lot of that comes with even what you described earlier about you know it's it's because you're in not just the teaching pastor role but you're in the uh, like you're feeling the primary weight of forming the life of the congregation. And so right. it, just, it even changes how you're thinking about what you're going to do with each sermon. 
it changes everything. It's unbelievable just the shift that I have experienced since I've been through here. An exciting shift. Um, I ache for the local church. I love them. I am so in love with this congregation. I love them madly. And so, um, you know, so a while ago there, or I guess, I don't know how long, there's a book called Birthing the Sermon, um, Women Preachers on the Creative Process. I don't know if you've heard about that. I have not heard this one. Oh, it's a powerful book. So there's many different authors in it that talk about um, and uh, the labor of love that goes into the preaching process and how it's like a birthing process. Mm. And even just the birthing process of pastoring has really resonated with me. This this nine-month process, for example, that we've gone through as a congregation of um, collaborating and praying and preparing and waiting and listening and praying and leaning in about this um, very contextual vision um, that God might be asking of us. And when I preached it on Sunday, I felt like I gave birth. I know that sounds crazy, but it was a birthing process. And, and it's because it's such a labor of love. And even the sermon is such a birthing process. It's, it is a labor of love that goes, um, that develops and then actually being able to deliver it. It's, um, and, and it's, and when you love a people, when you love, uh, the community that you are getting to come alongside of and lead and preach, you really feel like you are kind of handing them um, this love letter for them that you have um, prayed over and uh, reflected on. And um, it's a love letter for them in a lot of ways of where you hope uh, for them to go. You've been reading Eugene Peterson? <laughs> um it feels like no. a lot of that same heart for the congregation is is there it's beautiful but yeah I, I haven't read a lot of eugene peterson i think i i read um that blog post that went viral that he wrote in the 80s about the pastor's schedule but um other than that i um by the way i it, it wasn't a blog post that went viral in the 80s. <laughs> it was an article that he wrote in the 80s right. that was republished. <laughs> I, so, I was tracking with you. I was tracking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so all that, all that said then, um, w let's talk about how you determine, uh, obviously some of these things you've kind of already alluded to, you know, you talked about the wired for mission and now living for mission and how that fits in. But Let's talk a little bit about how you determine what you're going to be preaching on and how far out you're you're doing that. I mean, you're nine months in there, so obviously you might not have even been working on a year plan yet. But map out how you go through these sermons and how you how far ahead you're thinking about them. Well, um, I consider myself to be a highly collaborative leader. Um, I love collaboration. Collaboration. I love sitting in a room um, with innovative and creative people and hearing ideas. I'm often walking around our campus with a um, just giant uh, post-it papers and markers um, because I just love whiteboarding. And so preaching series, I love working out around a table with our other pastors. Um, and so when I came here, I came, you know, loaded with the Wired Permission series. I was ready for that. Hmm. Um, but since then, um, the... Sermon series, um, I'll usually come with our pastoral staff with ideas and um, thoughts 
Um, but we usually will sit around the table and start whiteboarding. And it's just amazing um, how after a couple hours of collaborating and dreaming and being creative together, how a sermon series will come to life. Uh, for example, the series that we did in September, Finding God, uh, I would have never come up with that series on my own. That was the result of our brilliant staff um, throwing ideas together. And as we were talking, it just became more and more clear. Um, the sermon series, Politics of Jesus, um, I felt like that was one that we needed to do. Um, but we came together as a pastoral staff again, and we collaborated, and we were able to come up with different themes for that. Um, and and one and one of the reasons too is we have a young pastoral staff. We have a lot of millennials on staff, and I think back to the days that I was a teaching pastor in the churches that I was in, and um, I am the preacher that I am today because other pastors let me sit at the table and collaborate, and other pastors let me preach. And so it's been really important for me to um, invite our pastors to the table for this and, and, and have them preach. Um, before I came here, Scott Daniels, he was um, the preacher. Yeah. Um, he um, preached every Sunday unless he was out of town and nothing wrong with that at all. That's beautiful. He's Scott Daniels is the best preacher in our denomination probably. Um, and for me, uh, I also think that it is a beautiful thing when there are other preachers coming to the table. Um, our congregation hears other perspectives and um, and other voices that are not my own. And so we've been working on developing a teaching and preaching team um, of, of some of our other preachers. And I've, it's just so fun for me to be able to work with some of our younger pastors who really aren't that much younger than me, by the way. Um, the elephant in the room is that, yes, I'm young. Um, I don't think you're technically a millennial though. No, I'm you're not a little past that little past. Right. I think I'm a cusper. Um, um, you know, in some ways I relate to the millennial generation in some ways I, I relate to the Gen X generation. Um, but it's just so neat and such um, a proud moment for me as their sister in Christ and fellow pastor to watch them preach before a congregation and then to be able for them to hear that affirmation is just so very cool. Um, so, yeah. So even with that, I mean, you're still you're still preaching much more. I, I mean, I know you were a youth pastor before, so it's not like you probably yeah. weren't putting together weekly lessons for that, but yes. talk about what is, what's the rhythm that you found or what's the work that you're doing to be able to week after week after week now. Um, I don't mean to sound ominous there, but it feels ominous sometimes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I never, I never do more than three in a row and that, that yeah. feels like, Oh my gosh, I got three in a row coming up, but uh, yeah. talk about, um, just talk about what uh, what I remember from you before is you love brightly colored notebooks. I don't know if yeah. you still have brightly colored no colored notebooks, but you love yeah. you know brightly colored notebooks that you were always jotting things in. So talk about how that's evolved now that you're so much more regular. Yeah, when I was a teaching pastor, I had a couple of weeks to birth a sermon, <laughs> and wow, what a difference it is now every single week. And so before, I had the luxury of brightly colored notebooks of spending hours and hours and hours of journaling my thoughts and, and 
um, you know, going through that brewing process, I still um, outline it and I still take notes in my journal. That's still always the first thing that I do is pen to paper um, before I even begin to type in a Microsoft Word. But now I don't have days to do that. I have hours to do that. Um, and so the process is I do sit down with a journal and I'll often write a short prayer. I'll often um, just begin to free write and write thoughts um, on the scripture passage, open the commentary. I'll take notes from the commentary. Um, and I usually have a stack of, I don't know, 10 books at least per sermon that I'm going through. Okay. And um, I write from home on Wednesdays. And so Tuesday night, I'll go through my office library, grab a stack of books. I'll bring them home. I take my kids to school on Wednesday morning and I go back home in front of the fireplace with a stack of books and I begin journaling and I read a ton. And um, usually after four hours of journaling and reading and studying or so, I will create a um, uh, kind of a skeleton outline of what I think it can look like and, uh, you know, chunking it out for me and being able to see kind of larger chunks of the sermon is helpful and to see the flow and kind of the arc, if you will. And then, um, and then I'll begin um, outlining it and then filling in from there. And then it's usually, usually not until Saturday night that I have stories. That's the hardest thing for me. Hmm. Um, I recognize that probably my strength in preaching is storytelling. I understand the, the importance of storytelling um, to help really bring a concept home for people. And sometimes it is just like agonizing, trying to think of stories and asking my husband, you know, you know, has this ever happened to us? Or was there ever time that we or uh, reading online about stories or that's the hard part. And so sometimes they don't come to me until the 11th hour. Um, and these are usually, typically personal stories or you're even Googling for stories? Yeah, my... I prefer personal stories. I tell a ton of stories about my children. Yeah. Tons. Um, my children, soon I'm going to have to start paying them royalties. But <laughs> um, my children give us a lot of hilarious, hysterical sermon illustrations. Um, and even personal ones about me, um, you know, in my walks of life. Or stories about ministry of, you know, people that I've met or encountered. Um Recently for this sermon series, I've been telling stories. So, for example, um, I read a story about Coach Wayne Gordon last week, and I told his story um, at the end of the sermon. Uh, this week, I read about a story about a church in Sacramento that um, went on mission in their neighborhood and, and just started by praying in the Detroit Boulevard uh, neighborhood of Sacramento. And... Um, just what happened after they began circling their neighborhood in prayer. And so, um, and so sometimes, you know, these stories will emerge from books that I'm reading. Uh, sometimes they'll emerge from a blog post that I read. Um, it just kind of depends. So, so prior, let, let me backtrack then prior to Wednesday. I mean, you said Tuesday, you're going through your library to figure out books. So what do you, what do you already have in place before Wednesday that you know that you've got as a starting point? Yeah, so we have the sermon title in place because, you know, the sermon series are mapped out. So I have a title in place. Um, usually 
Monday or Tuesday, I'll have a scripture in place. If it was, I mean, usually uh, for these sermon series, we'll have scriptures uh, mapped out as a team. So I'll have that in place. Um, and so then I'll just look through my library, you know, so this week um, I grabbed several commentaries. Um, I grabbed several, there's many, many missional books that I have right now. I've been leaning a lot into David Fitch's new book, mm -hmm. um, The Seven Disciplines. Uh, that shape us. Let's see. What is that? The seven, his newest book. Yeah. Uh, pres, pres, uh, I'm going blank too. Yes. Yeah. Well, the something, the seven disciplines that shape us for mission or presence, or it's really good. Faithful, faithful presence. <laughs> faithful presence. That is it. Thankfully, I know he would, he would not be listening to this podcast. No. Uh, or otherwise he'd give me a lot of grief and you. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Yep. So, yeah, so that book has been really, really um, good. And then also, I mean, thankfully, being a graduate of Northern Seminary, I have access to the online journals and databases. Um, so there was just some really great journals that I was reading on missional discipleship this week that was really helpful and profound and um, and exciting. And that's all Wednesday. So Tuesday, you've got a few key verses that you're going to be looking at. So yeah. you know that you're going to grab those commentaries. Is there, I right. mean, is there even like a short summary or thesis statement in place you're hoping to build on? Yes. Yeah. So when we are creating the um, sermon series, um, I will um, immediately go back to my desk and take all the giant uh, white paper um, and capture the notes and I'll write, you know, about four sentences under every sermon. Hmm. So I had four sentences, um, for this sermon, a title, a scripture. Um, so I had a pretty good idea where I was headed. And then what happens between Wednesday and Saturday? I mean, Wednesday, you've got the chunks of an outline and, mm -hmm. and you're aching and hoping and longing that stories come, but how do the rest of those pieces get filled in? Well, by the end of the day, Wednesday, I my goal is to have written 2,200 words on a Word document. Hmm. Um, and and so yesterday, my goal was met because that's about how many words I aim for per sermon. And would that be like a genuine manuscript of the sermon? Is it that detailed? It's pretty detailed. Yeah. Um, in outline format, though. Um, my outlines would make sense to no one except for me. <laughs> It is just madness. Um, I, but for me, is it's because I memorize them um, and I internalize them, but I still put those outlines inside of my Bible and seeing the weird indents somehow helps me, uh, a little bit of a photographic memory. And so I still, I have my sermon in front of me and I'll look down, you know, um, to see where I am and seeing the crazy indents and highlights help. Um, yeah, so, so by Wednesday night, um, I aim for that many words and, and then the brewing process really begins again. I allow that to sink in because then, you know, you'll be driving or I'll be brushing my teeth or I'll be, um, you know, doing the dishes and all of a sudden a new idea will hit me and I'll jot that down on my phone or a story or a sermon illustration will hit me. Um, and I'll jot that down on my phone. And then Saturday night, I usually spend about four hours on it on Saturday night. Um, I'll rework it, massage it. And the most important part for me, that is a newer practice that I never used to do. Probably three years ago, I never did this. Um, I read it out loud twice. 
I don't preach it out loud. I mean, I read it very monotone and usually to my husband because somehow saying it out loud helps me catch errors and um, things that didn't really connect or I'll realize, oh, that was a disconnect or that didn't flow well. And I'll be tweaking it as I'm saying it out loud to my husband. Um, and as I'm reworking it too, that's when I'll add stories if I didn't have any. So about four hours on Saturday night. And then I wake up on Sunday morning and um, I read it again. I usually read it two more times on Sunday morning. And then hopefully out, um, no, not out loud on, on Sunday mornings. Okay. I just read. My goal is to read it out loud twice on Saturday night and then just read it a couple of times on Sunday morning. Then hopefully by the time um, I preach it, I preach it twice, 8 a.m. and 1030. Unless I go to our other campus, I'll preach it three times. Um, and hopefully by then it's mostly internalized that I don't have to read it at all. So you you specified you read it monotone on Saturday night. Is that just so that we don't picture you standing in front of your husband sitting on the couch uh, yeah. preaching at him? Or is that or do you find there's some benefit to trying to be more monotone in that that effort, so to speak? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I don't know why I don't preach it, actually. Um, part of it actually all of it is I really believe that when I'm preaching that the spirit is working through me and evokes this passion and a bit of drama in me, if you will. I'm, I can be, a, I'm very dramatic with my mannerism mannerisms. Um, and, um, and a lot of it is me responding to the work of the spirit. And on Saturday nights, um, Yes, there's there's a birthing process that is happening, but um, there's no reason for me to practice, you know, tone or drama or effects or anything like that. I just need to read it to make sure it flows. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like you're you have a lot of trust that the preparation that you're going to do is going to create the form that the spirit can come inhabit. Can I say that much? Like, so now that you've got these words in place, then you want to be comfortable enough with them that the spirit can do the rest on Sunday. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I mean, the spirit, I mean, of course the spirit has been, the spirit is the one birthing these words. Sure, inside, sure. You know, um, but Sunday morning, um, it is the result of really, truly a birthing process. And, um, a passion is ignited in me and it just, I guess, you know, it just goes and I trust the work of the spirit there. And you said on Wednesday, you tend to, you know, well, you, you do it almost all on Wednesday. Do you find that as you're chunking it out and outlining it, is there any kind of uh, general, general structure that you follow with your sermons? Um. Yeah, it depends. So I um, will often step into many different preaching styles. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it's as far as the arc of the sermon goes. So I have preached on um, topics before. I have preached narrative, um, you know, where it's kind of just one big kind of narrative story. I have uh, preached with three points at the end of the sermon, more teaching sermons. So it really just depends. Um, so for example, when it was Wired for Mission, um, it was, um, you know, really preaching the text and 
Uh, I mean, of course, we're always preaching the text, but um, more of a 10,000 foot up. Um, this series, for example, at the end, we're talking about what does that look like in our context to actually live this mission now? So what are vehicles that our folks can get into, um, whether it be ministries or places that they can plug in or things that they can actually do? So at the end of every sermon for this series, we're talking about specific ways of how our folks can live the mission. Um, I typically like to open up with a story just to kind of wake up anyone that's sleeping <laughs> yeah, um, and capture their imag- imagination. And I typically like to end with a story. Those are my two goals, opening and ending with the story, just to, one, wake it, wake everyone up, bring them in, and close it with um, a word picture of what that looks like. And how much, what's the variation between those two stories? Like, how much do you want to give away with that opening story? This is what I think about sometimes when I'm using stories. It's like, do I want to use this to tease people into where we're going? Or do I want it to bring fullness to what we've already talked about? So how do you determine those? I usually use it as a teaser um, to bring us into um, um, just kind of the subject matter of what we are talking about. Um, I once heard it as, um, you give someone a sip of something and it makes them want more and they want more and more of what you're saying. And, um, I think that was, oh, who was, what, oh, I can't remember what author was that described it that way I'm preaching, but anyway, Um, And so to capture their imagination, number one, but also make them want more and want the answer of what it is we are talking about in preaching. And so posing a question or uh, posing a problem, and then by the end of the sermon, being able to um, sometimes wrap it up, but sometimes we can't always wrap it up with a perfect bow, can we? But we can point to the hope that is in Christ and the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Terabeth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been good to circle back. I, I guess I will ask, you know, you mentioned the birthing, the sermon, but uh, along the way, have there been any other resources that you've found have been helpful for shaping the uh, what you're feeling about preaching and, and forming a church that way? Yeah, well, for me lately, it's been helpful to read um, books from a woman's voice. Mm-hmm. And so Birthing the Sermon has been really influential for me, Women Preachers on the Creative Process. Um, IVP came up with a book last year, A Little Handbook for Preachers, 10 Practical Ways to a Better Sermon by Sunday by Mary S. Holst. Um, That has been a, a just, again, it, it is what it is. It really is a practical little book, but even just hearing it from the woman's voice. Um, Jackie Reese uh, has a book on women preachers that has also been really, really helpful for me, you know, because, um, I'm for years, I only heard and saw male preachers and, um, embracing my voice as a woman preacher has been a awesome journey. And there's just nothing as encouraging as hearing another woman preach and hearing about the preaching process from the voice or perspective of a woman. And that's Jackie Reese? I'm yes. Not, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay. I'll see yeah. what I can track down. Um, it's... Um, I hear your keyboard. 
Yes, it is. Oh, She Can Teach by Jackie Reese. Okay. R-O-E-S-E. Um, oh, well, she that's also, why I find it. Okay. Yeah. She also wrote the book Lime Green, um, which is another really good one, a book for women in ministry. And so huge encouragement. Uh, and then uh, I'll give you this. I believe I saw that you're writing a book, right? Did you did I did you tweet that or something somewhere? I, I did. It's done. Uh, the first draft is done, so now it's in the editor's hands. It's with InterVarsity Press, and it's called Emboldened: A Vision for Women in Ministry, or a Vision for Empowering Women in Ministry. And what's the, what's the timeline on that? Yeah. So right now it's in the editing process and. Hopefully by the end of this year, it'll be released as we know that this is, these are long, long, um, uh, processes. And so proceeds, what's the, what's the correct way? Processes. Yeah. I think it's processes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, it's a long process. So by the end of this year, and I'm so excited about it and talk about a labor of love. Um, that book is just my love for the bride of Christ and seeing the bride of Christ live into her fullness with men and women co-laboring together on mission. And so I am so excited and so nervous that other people are going to be reading um, my labor of love. Yeah. That's great though. It's great. You had the opportunity and obviously it's something you've had a lot of passion about, even from seeing many of your blog posts on Missio. So yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, let me close with this, which is, you know, I said early on, I didn't get a chance to go back and listen, but I I, I mean, I still remember pieces of that one. And I'll tell you, it's fun to sit here and talk to you now. Granted, you're only nine months in there, but it just seems like there's been a lot of, I, I can say growth, but I can also say movement just to hear. It seems like back then, writing sermons was something that you were doing. And now because it's so much more consumes your role at the church for one thing, but it just seems like writing sermons is something you're being. I'm not even sure what that means, but it feels like it's true. (laughs) It is. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is so much from within uh, the heart and ache aches and longings for these people. Um, It's, it's a love letter for them every week. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Mary. I almost just called you Mary Kate because I was uh, reading, oh. reading a book by Mary Kate uh, Morse earlier. <laughs> thank you no, so much, Tara Beth. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Great, great to talk to you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks once again, friends. You can find uh, links, books, uh, bio, all of that about Tara Beth and all of the previous podcasts at SermonSmith.com. You can follow along to catch up with new updates on Twitter at SermonSmith or do a search for Facebook, all one word, uh, for SermonSmith. And, of course, uh, any time that you're willing to take a few moments and share on social media what you're listening to, what you're enjoying about the podcast to help others find it, uh, please do. Thanks so much.